So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 127. It's, it's a short psalm. It's only five verses. But of course, you know, being that I'm former Baptist, we're going to split some of the verses in half and preach on those and expand it and make it longer. Notice that this also is a psalm of ascent in our series. And notice also, too, in your own Bible, uh, it should say, a psalm of Solomon. Here we go. Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is useless. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives rest to his loved ones. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like sharp arrows in a warrior's hands. How happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. Uh, it was a few years ago when I began to relinquish control of the remote control in my house. Um, that is because I, as the male, am, uh, am out, outnumbered uh, now with the cat four to one. Um, four to one in the house, and both the dog and I are fixed. So I don't know if that would <laughs> counts for much of anything. But my family, last night, I, I, I thought about this, and I was like, I was like, what, what, do, what do other like, 46-year-old men with their families are watching right now? Because we were watching the cooking channel. It's the holiday baking bake-off. I've never felt like so much of a man in my entire life in that moment. And so that's kind of what our TV watching boils down to a lot of. We watch a lot of, uh, uh, sometimes I make them watch sports and they begrudgingly watch with me. But we watch a lot of HGTV. We watch a lot of the Cooking Network. Uh, my kids discovered uh, Disney Plus. And so Hannah and I watched the Goofy movie last night together. And then we watch Ratatouille, which all strong-willed men do. On, uh, but you know what? One, at least one of the shows that I love on HGTV is Fixer Upper. Like, I love Fixer Upper. I love Fixer Upper because Chip and Joanna are believers. I love Chip because I feel like I can relate to him, except for he's better at everything than I am. So, uh, you know what? And so, whenever, and, and such a, such a, like, absolutely believable show, right? We have a budget of 35 cents for this house. And we have an all-in budget of fixing up of $10,000, and at the end of it, you have a house that's worth $400,000. And you know, and also too, it's like, she's a pet gerbil wrangler, and he makes paper mache, and their combined income is $1.5 million. And I'm like, what in the heck? Where do y'all find these people from? You know, they need to be like, like the pastor right here. He's like, I got 45 cents, you know, what can you do? But the thing that I love about it is there's one part of when you do a fixer-upper that I can do. There's one part that I can do, and that is every time they find a house, they never just do stuff to it. They have a day where they have demolition, right? That part I could do. Like, I, my mom at four years old, if she would have asked her, what is he going to be? She'd be like, demolition, I don't know. Whatever it is, he's going to demolish it. But in a day, they take this house and beat the tar out of it. And just knock down this wall and knock down this and rip this out and rip this wall out. And even like sometimes Chip will like do something where he like busts through a wall. And I'm like, I could do that. But then through the magic of television, what you don't realize is that in that day, that maybe it could maybe only be four to six hours, months go by where construction happens. Destruction takes no time whatsoever. But construction is painstaking. It is tedious. It is costly. It is time-consuming. And building is a hard thing to do. And so in Psalm 127, 
We get that it is a psalm of ascent, and it was written by Solomon, but we think that it gained prominence during, and y'all again, bear with me on these biblical doctrinal turns, during the post-exilic period of Jerusalem. Now, some of y'all are like, please explain what that is. So during the time that the Babylonians came and they invaded Israel and they took the Israelites off to Babylon, they left some there, then the Babylonians came and destroyed Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and then King Cyrus lets them go back, lets them return, and as they come back, the city is busted up, but they get to rebuild it. And so you can see that this psalm that was written maybe 200 years before begins to get prominence now when the people are saying, unless the Lord builds a house, and they're, they're talking about building, and they're talking about guarding, and they're talking about growing. Now the other part of this is that uh, it's hard for me, and I told Danielle, this is a hard one for me, because I'm one of those people that looks at the life that Solomon lived, and I go, Solomon, these are great words, you didn't live by them. And that's hard. And we know that in the end of Solomon's life, he actually turned from the Lord and worshipped idols. We also know that he had children, and they did not turn out well. Neither did his daddy's children turn out all that great either. But we can find common ground, because how often do we say the right thing, but don't do the right thing? How often do we know the wisdom, but don't live by it? So we're talking about building, we're talking about guarding, we're talking about growing. And in this text, when you see the word house, notice that there is a Hebrew play on words because house and household sound like a very similar word. So when you see house in this, you can also refer to it as household, and I would refer to you back, for you back to the part where David says to Samuel, and he says, I think I should build a temple for the Lord. And Samuel says, go for it. And then the Lord speaks to Samuel and says, no, you tell David, you're not going to be the one to build a house for me, but through you I will build a house or a dynasty or a household, and from it will come the king of all kings. From it will come. And so this, he did not get to build a house, but God built a household through him. Thirdly, when we talk about children in this text, realize that this is not talking merely about biological children. It is also talking about spiritual children. And what I mean by that are children or people that are younger in the faith than you or new to the faith that you and I and hopefully others are pouring into that they might grow up and mature in the faith. And if you want to see one of the greatest examples of this in the Bible is Paul and Timothy. And if you look at Paul and Timothy, Timothy could have been 16, 17 years old while Paul is pouring into him. But when you look at the Letters that Paul writes him in First and Second Timothy, that's conveniently named. He says, "Timothy, my what son? Timothy, my son." So this is bigger than just just children and just you know you're not off the hook if you're like, well, I don't have any kids or I hate kids or whatever. Don't be that person, by the way. But so let's jump right into the text. And again, just so we can you know get really all into it, we're going to divide this into one A and one B because that's what. Preachers do. They, they make it longer. But they want you to see it because we don't want you to just get through one and go to the next one. The first part of the first verse, you want to go back and you want to make a note to go and refer to John 15, 5. John 15, 5 is the same thing and is Christ's words for what, the, what Solomon is saying in this one. And Christ's words in the context of John 15 is the whole I am the vine, you are the branches part where Jesus says. And Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing, no thing. 
And I love it. Frank Turek and uh, some, other, some other apologists say, nothing is what rocks dream about. Right? That's what you can do apart from the Lord. Nothing. Not even, not even a thing. You can do nothing. And so this, word, this next word, build, it implies that there is work to be done. And so if you want to know what building through the Lord or the Lord building, because obviously we never have this big hand come down from heaven and start scooping up stuff and making bricks and blocks and, you know, fashioning. What it's talking about is we work, and we work in partnership with the Lord. And that looks like, number one, submitting to the will of God. We hate that word submitting, but get used to it. We submit to the will of God. We find our strength for the work through God, and we find our purpose for the work in God. So it, it's, we submit to the will of God, we have strength through God, and our purpose is found in God. And God permeates every part of what we do. And so one of the questions that we're going to ask continually through this text is, where is God in your work? Where is God in your work? And that's a tough thing because there are a lot of times I work for the church. Like that's what I do. And sometimes I have to remind myself, where is God in this? What's God doing? You know, you can also do all kind of work for the church and God not be in it. And I'm going to say something to you that may be controversial, but I think there were a lot of single men that struggled with their issues of sexuality, and they fled to the priesthood of the Catholic Church thinking they could do the work of God and escape the sin that they were in. But what happened? Wherever you are, there you are. And you take your issues with you. And so it's not just to be like, well, I'm doing the Lord's work. Is the Lord active? Are you submitting to his will, and are you finding his strength in your work no matter what you're doing? So in verse 1b, again, like a good... Good preacher, we make it bigger. Now we realize that we think that this text gained more popularity because there were psalms out there, but this text gained popularity and was a psalm of ascent to going up into worship during the post-exile period because they would have looked back and they would have thought, you know what? Before Babylon invaded and before they tore them down, these walls were here. These walls were mighty and there were sentries on the walls. But they were no match for the Babylonians. And so they say, come back and they say, listen, these walls have been torn down. It's only if God is watching over us and we are in his will that he will protect us. And so it's this whole idea that we never can forget that we are at war. With so much, if you want to go look and talk about the very end of Ephesians, Paul even talks about outfitting ourselves, not just the buildings, but ourselves with these issues of war because war is with us. And so we're going to rely on God's strength and we're going to plan for defense through him. So verse 2, verse 2 is really a great warning against human overconfidence. Now my entire last point is going to be based on this one, so if I, you don't, if I don't say what you want me to say on this one, trust me, I'll come back to it. But verse 2 is a warning against overconfidence in our own efforts. And if you want to see how this plays out again in Christ's words, in the Lord's Prayer, what does Jesus say? Give us this day our daily bread. And there's this idea that there is a holy dependence. We work, but we're dependent on God. And we also understand that every good and perfect gift comes to us from him. That's what James 1 tells us. Now, if you have in, the, um, in your NIV or maybe you have the NRSV, it says, otherwise you will be working for the bread of anxious toil. Now, that's a very poetically biblical term, but what they're saying is you work so much and yet because God is not the center of what you're doing, God's not giving you purpose and you're not submitting to his will, you can't even enjoy the fruits of your labor. And sometimes we go, yeah, I know that. I've been doing that for the last 20 years. No matter what I do, how much I do, how much of it I do, I never can work. I never can get rest. It's not fulfilling. It's not whatever. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not. 
And so the psalmist is saying, but is God the center of it? Where's God in it? It could be you're stamping out widgets every day, but if God is in the middle of it, if you're subjecting yourself to God's will and submitting yourself to it and you're finding your strength in him, then the, even the rest that you have, you will be able to enjoy. And the other thing that I love at the very last part of this verse is God gives rest to his loved ones. Implied in the Hebrew is God is working even when you're sleeping. How many of y'all worked a job where someone's like, hey, you know what, you need to go take your break. I can't take a break. If I take a break, now everything will fall apart. That's a miserable place to be in, is it not? But this text, there's freedom because what he's reminding you is if God is in it, if you're working through him, if you're submitting to the will of God, even when you leave, even when you put the hammer down, even when you rest, God is still working because you're not the one sustaining yourself. God is sustaining you. And so there's a trust that leads to rest. So verse 3, notice again that there is this pause right here between verses 2 and verses 3, just like we had in verses 3 and verses 4 in Psalm 126. So in Psalm 127, he says children. Now remember, children also is talking about household. So we're not just talking about our biological children, we're talking about the household. And to make that a bigger circle, what is the church usually called? The house of God, the house of God. Of the Lord. So, this also, where we are right now and what is going on all over our country and all over the world, is a household of God. We are raising up children here. We are raising up those who are young in the faith to be strong in the faith. And so, what does he say? He says, I'm not talking about just physical children, but I'm also talking about spiritual children. And again, I said, Paul and Timothy is a great example of this. And they are a gift from God. Now, I know that most of y'all don't believe that. But it's not just that they are a gift from God, it's that they're from God. And you're like, okay, that's redundant. Now, hang on just a second. Now, there's a friend of mine that is a record producer, and on his wall he has a framed coffee filter. And some of y'all are like, why would you do that? Well, this, this guy that produced the Stone Temple Pilots and Nirvana and Soundgarden and yada, 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 all in the 90s, was one of his favorite producers, and he ran into him one time in a coffee shop, and all he had was a coffee filter, so he grabbed up the coffee filter, got it, and the guy said, to my friend Ricky, thank you so much, blah, 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 hope you're doing anything great, all the best, Aaron Sprinkle. And it's framed now. Now it's a coffee filter. What makes it precious? Who it's from. Now we don't need to be told children are precious. You need to be told that in the middle of the night, you do, or when they throw up on you. But in the delivery room, your wife is screaming, but you're going, this is amazing. And, and newborn dads, because that's what you are, you're a newborn dad, because you weren't a dad before, but then all of a sudden you are. And you hold that baby and you just kind of go, <gasps> and immediately you realize you'd kill anyone that looks wrongly at them. And so it's doubly precious because they're precious, but they're from God. Well, equally so are spiritual children. The relationships that we get to have with someone who is growing in the Lord that we get to pour into. And so children, they're precious, and they're from God. And then verse 4, we turn. And so this whole idea is that they're born to a young man. What this, whole, what this means is if we raise children to know the Lord, remember, biological and spiritual, know the Lord, and serve in Christ's kingdom, Serving Christ's kingdom, both biological and spiritual, these children become the next generation to do what? Build the kingdom, defend the truth, preach the gospel, and invade enemy territory on behalf of the Lord. That's, that's, that's what this is about. It's raising up those to profess Christ as Savior, whether they're biological or spiritual, whether they're people we just have relationships with or people that we got to put through college. 
And we raise them up to be the next generation. And again, when you think about this, does this not make sense? A house is empty until there are what? New generations that are coming into it. A house will be empty. A church will be empty. A, a kingdom will be empty unless there are new generations coming and building and working in it. And so in verse 5, we got to beware not to take verse 5 literally. We don't take verse 5 literally. Um, you know, you don't, it's not this idea of, you know, just the more children you have, the greater it's going to be. Because I would just say, look at David's life and look at Solomon's life. Solomon, Solomon, you know, all kind of wives and all kind of, all kind of children. And David, all kind of wives and all kind of children. And if you read 2 Samuel, it's just the whole drama of all his children. And then, and then we get to Chronicles and this drama with all of Solomon's offspring as well. So, but what they're saying is in this text, you need to remember that historically, so the historical way of interpreting this is we've got to realize that there's no retirement homes in Jerusalem. Children were your retirement plan. Right? The more kids you have, the more opportunities that you won't tick one of them off, they might let you live with them. You know? Children, were, children are the health care plan. Children are the retirement plan. Children are the Medicare. The more children you have, the more, the more chances you have. But in reality, again, spiritually what we're talking about is we are raising up those who would profess Christ and will defend the church. You will not be put to shame because we'll have generation after generation after generation, hopefully, if we're not just stopping where we are and being introspective, but we're raising up children, both biological and spiritual, to profess the Lord Know the truth, defend the truth, and live in the truth. So a couple quick things about this text, because um, some of y'all are already just going to go, well, I don't have kids, or I don't know about kids, or this is foreign to me, or I didn't, this wasn't done well in my life, or I've never seen it done well, or, or whatever, or you don't know about my job, my work is terrible, and I, I'm looking for a job right now, it's terrible, I, I, my alarm goes off, and I just hate it, and okay, okay. But I want to say these couple things to you first. First point is this. Unless God is in it, it's pointless. And it's pointless to worry if God is in it. Say that one more time. Unless God is in it, it's pointless. And it's pointless to worry if God is in it. Notice that the two, ver two words that we have in verses 1 and 2 are unless and useless. Unless and useless. Unless God's in it, it's pointless. And if God's not in it, it's useless for you to even worry about it. Because it's doomed to fail. And so this whole idea is, where is your work and where is your confidence? And who are you actively putting your confidence in? And realizing that when you put your confidence in God, he's there. Stop worrying about it. Trust in him. Now, when we were in high school, uh, the Baptists graduate you out of this thing called RAs. And you go from RAs, and we used to have this thing called high school Baptist young men. So real, you know, slips right off the tip of your tongue. Where are you going to? High school Baptist young men. Flows right off the tongue. But anyway, we had a basketball team, because that's the only way you can get high school kids to come back and sit for an extra hour on Wednesday night. And so we had a basketball team, and we had to work at this workbook in order to play for the basketball. And so you have to complete a chapter, take the book to your game. These people would, like, check it off, all this kind of stuff. And we had a kid in our church, his name was Andy Allen. Now, Andy Allen, I'm as tall as I've been. I'm as tall, I'm as tall right now as I was when I was a junior in high school or a senior in high school, whatever. Andy Allen's 6'4". He could dunk it. That literally is like a white rhino among white people. Play on words there. But anyway, and Andy, we were like, Andy, you got to play for our team. And he's like, no way. I ain't coming to those stupid meetings. And we were like, fair enough. We'll do your book for you. Then will you come? All right. 
And you know what? Occasionally, Andy would be like, hey, listen, I got to work at the liquor store. I don't know. He seemed like he worked at the liquor store. Probably didn't, but he's, he had a beard and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, we were like, oh, man, you got, a, you got third shift at the liquor store. All right, good stuff. So but anyway, but we would, do his, we would do his book, and then we'd wait in the parking lot because he had his own Camaro, right? It's, just, it's, it's, the, it's the 80s. He had his own Camaro, and he's driving up. And we're there, and we're in the parking lot, and we're in the church bus, and we're looking around, and we're like, Andy's not here. Did you do his book? Yeah, I did his book. Darn. We got to beat these other Baptists. And then we hear the and the Trans Am come in, and we're like, Andy's here. We got this junk. And right off the bat, like, Andy would get the first tip and then go dunk on him. We were like, suckers. Don't look. Why? And then they'd be like, why does your handwriting look like this handwriting in this book? I don't know. Anybody. But anyway, we did not worry when he was in it. We didn't worry when he was in it. And he wasn't just a one-man show. He would take the ball, and he'd pass it to you. And if he passed it to you, you had this extra confidence. You'd say, Andy thinks I can make the ball. And then I'd go back behind the three-pointer and brick it, but then he'd give me another one. I was about a one-for-five guy on that one. But we didn't worry because he was literally in it with us. He was part of the household. And there was peace among us all because he was in it. And we were working with him and by his side. And he strengthened us. And so a house and a household, when you do your work, I just simply want to ask you, is God in it? Have you invited him in it? Now, fortunately for us, we don't have to do God's workbook for him to show up. He probably has a Camaro but, um, or a white horse. But realize that when we talk about work in the New Testament, work is a huge theme in the New Testament. Now, of course, we, we would refer to the book of Acts and we look at the work that was done to build the church, the work of the Holy Spirit the work of the apostles, the work of the disciples, the work to build the Holy Spirit, and that's where we get even all these other letters from. But then we also just think, and we take a step, a step back, and we realize, then there was the work of Christ. I know that you're, you're thinking about, well, the work of the three years, you know, working with the disciples and working with their lives, but we get to realize that the work that he did that's the most important was the work that he did on the cross, the work that he did to save us, the work that he did to justify us. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit is working right now, right? The Holy Spirit's working. The Holy Spirit's doing something called sanctifying us, making us holy. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the bad news. If Andy Allen, who had showed up at our basketball games, had showed up, and we were like, all right, Andy, cool, glad you're here, and the coach was like, Andy, I want you to sit out the first quarter. He'd have been like, what? And then when Andy got put in the game, I'm standing like way guarded by four people out here at the three-point line, and Andy's underneath the basket, and I don't pass it to him. We'd be like, what are you doing? Andy Allen's here. Why aren't you passing it to him? In the same way, we can also work against what Christ and the Holy Spirit are doing in our lives. When we don't invite him into our labor, when we don't submit to his will, and when we don't seek to actively find our strength through him, we're actually working against him. And that's not only in your spiritual life, but also in your vocational and home life. So barring that we're not doing that, how then do we build in concert and work in concert with the Lord? And how then do we know that the Lord is protecting us? I'm not going to give you like these things, this list of things to do. I'm just going to ask you some questions. Does God have ownership of your labor? Does God have ownership of your labor? Do you actively acknowledge that God is the Lord over your work? And do you consider him actually the authenticator of your work? He's the one that makes it legit. 
Ephesians 6, 7, Paul's talking to servants and masters, but he says this very incredible point in Ephesians 6, 7. Do your work, whatever it is, as if you're working for the Lord. Y'all, I've worked in some places where I had to have that attitude, otherwise someone was going to get punched. And it is hard, and I've been there. But is God the owner of your labor? Do you acknowledge his lordship over your work? And do you acknowledge that he's the one that makes your work legit, the authenticator? Secondly, is he the owner of the outcome of your work? Now, sometimes we don't, we don't like to think about that. We just think about, yeah, all right, I'm doing my work as if I'm working for the Lord. And then when it turns out bad, I'll blame it on him. When we realize that God is the owner of our outcome, that means that if we trust in the labor, then we needn't worry about the outcome because the Lord of labor is also the Lord of the fruit of our labor. This is why people can't take the time off. This is why people can't rest. This is why people don't trust other people at their work or other people in their families or other people in their church. If I don't have my hand on this, it's going to fail. If I don't do that, if I don't show up and lead this Bible study, if I don't show up and sing this song, if I don't show up and do this, it's going to be a fail. I'm, it's, 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 it's all about me, but I don't want to say that. But if we trust that the Lord is the Lord of our work, then we can also trust that he's the Lord of our outcome, and that means that we can rest. And by the way, God shut everything down after six days of creation and said, hey, I'm taking the day off. You do too. And we bucked against that so hard that when you read later on in Exodus and finally get to Deuteronomy, God was like, look, don't work on the Sabbath. I'm telling you, don't work on the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath or you're going to get in trouble. Finally, it's like, don't work on the Sabbath or you will die. Why? Because we don't get the message. God, if I don't have my hand on it, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to break, it's going to mess up. God says, you'll never rest until I'm the Lord of it. So verse 2, he gives rest. Verse 2, he says, he gives rest. When we correctly leave the ownership and the outcome up to our Lord, we are free to rest because we know it's not in our hands. And I would ask this about worry for you. Does worry ever enhance your work or your security? Have you ever been alone as a little kid watching a horror movie in a house by yourself? You felt safe until that junk came on, then all of a sudden you began to worry. Did you feel more safer because of worry? Did you feel more safer? Appalachian State, guys, sorry. <laughs> worry actually robs us, but trust in the Lord. And it's pointless to work without God as Lord of his all, as Lord of it all, because if he is Lord... It is pointless to worry. He's got it. Now let's talk about kids. We're talking about kids. We're talking about kids both spiritual and physical. So if you've got a kid around you, turn around, look, lock eyes with them. Say, so, you know, give, do this to them. Make sure they know that you're talking about them. But this is children spiritual and biological. Children spiritual and biological. So if children are a gift from the Lord then the greatest work that we can do is to teach them about him. Say that one more time. If children are a gift from the Lord, then the greatest gift that we can give them is to teach them about him or to teach them about the gift giver who is him. Now, it's not coincidental that verses 1 and 2 are talking about building and security and verses 3 and 5 are talking about the work of children raising and the gift of child raising. They go together. And so you've got to understand that there's going to be some connection between security and work and building and children and what does that look like. 
So you know what? There's this inclusive nature of the text. It's not just biological children, but it's also those that we are raising up. Now, I want to tell you something about How many of you have said, hey, I'm raising my children to, I'm raising my children up to this. Do you know what that literally means? I'm, ra- I'm, I'm working to get rid of them. That's what raising up children means. I'm working to get rid of them. Isn't that the goal? You know, what do we call that? Failure to launch? Like, you know, when you have the kid and they're 40 years old living in your basement playing, you know, Tetris down there? Some parents would be okay with that. You like that. But we're raising our children up. Why? We're raising them to be adults. And as Christians, we're raising them to know the truth of the gospel, to live by the gospel, and to be disciples of Jesus Christ so that they can go up and raise up other children and invest in the lives of others. So there's an inclusive nature of this. We're raising them up to live in, with, and through the truth of the gospel. Now, when we understand this, have this understanding of biological and spiritual children, we gotta, have a, we gotta ask another couple questions about how then do we do this? And this is not just a practical matter, but it's a spiritual matter, and so there's gonna be some poking that you may not be comfortable with. So verse three, children are a gift from God. So I wanna say this to you bluntly. Because children are a gift from God, we can neither worship them nor neglect them. Think about everything that the people worship that is apart from God is actually a gift from God. Sex, money, even things that people make out of wood or idols or whatever like that. That was a gift from God, creation. It came from creation. So children also are a gift from God. You can neither worship them nor neglect them. And those are the extreme ends, but that's where we in our culture find ourselves with the greatest amount of messed upness in our culture. Our culture, and in our culture, we worship children, and so there's never any discipline. We worship them. Why would we discipline something that we worship? Why would we say no to something that we worship? Why, Why would we ever put guidelines up for something that we worship? Why would we think that no money is enough money for something that we worship? And on the other hand, we have a society that throws away children like they're nothing, like they mean nothing. Now, most of us fall somewhere in the middle of erring on this side every once in a while and erring on this side every once in a while. And because of our sinfulness, we sometimes sit on the couch when our kid needs us. And sometimes when our kid needs a swift kick in the butt, we give him 50 bucks. I wish my parents had done that, but they were a little bit more on this side. They're a little bit more on this side, and I've got the... Got the rear end to prove it. But we, because children are a gift, we can neither worship them nor neglect them. Secondly, to build a household, now this is verses one and two, to build a household is work. Some of y'all are like, no, duh. Come around my house, I got some work for you to do. And it's the work of life. But also there is spiritual work that has to be done. Spiritual work for your children. And so part of this is just this very simple, very simple phrase of, don't be surprised that you have work to do. Biological parents, spiritual parents. Don't be surprised there's, there's, there's work to do. I think sometimes even at church, we just think that we're in the process of sitting on a log at church and falling off a log at church and becoming evangelists on the spot. You know what, I don't know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, just, I'm gonna just figure this out. You know, we're gonna have a kid, it's gonna be great, and then we have the kid, they're gonna be Christians. Nope, don't be surprised when there's work that takes place. Some of your parents are like, Preach! But this is just, just simply, don't be surprised that there is work. And we know this when we look at what was going on in the reconstruction of Babylon, in the, in the reconstruction of Israel after the Babylonian destruction. In the reconstruction, there were some people that were like, yeah, I don't feel like working. And the other tribes came along and were like, you better buck up and get out there. 
And they get back and it's a mess and they're surprised that they have to work. Don't be surprised that raising up a Christian household, remember that is this room as well, requires work. Thirdly, this goes right along with the second point. Don't nanny out your spiritual responsibility. Now, I'm going to be, I'm going to be very careful. Some, some, of, some families, they have super hard work schedules. Some families have tons of children and extraneous health things that go on, and you need that extra third set of hands, third set of eyes, third set of ears to help and get your kid to hear that, to hear over here, over there, whatever. I'm not talking about that kind of nanny. I'm talking about when you outsource the spiritual development of your kids. You can't do that. And in this day and age, there's a whole bunch of people that are like, whether it's, you know, whether it's someone that they know is just a new believer or whether it's a biological child in their own life, they're like, I don't know what to do. We'll get them to church. Now, is it my job and is it the job of people that are here to make disciples of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But my job stops at your doorstep and guess what? I get your kids for this amount of time and you got them for the whole week. You cannot outsource discipling your kids. You cannot outsource it. The greatest work that you will ever do is not at all in your workplace. It is in your home. Do not outsource the working of your kids. This goes into the fourth point. Buildings, companies, and careers will not be in heaven. Some of y'all are like, praise the Lord. <laughs> Work my last third shift ever. Buildings, companies, and careers will not be in heaven, but children will be. Spiritual and biological. And so if you outsource that, if you outsource that, you're actually not raising up another generation to fill the house of the Lord, to fill the kingdom of the Lord, to make more disciples. It's incredible when you look at how this happened and played out in our own church. So when Danielle and I came to Corinth, we came in the year 2000. Bob had come in 1993. Somebody know better about that than me, 93? And so what had happened was because Corinth was not an evangelistic or evangelical congregation during the 80s, there were no young families with children. There weren't any. There weren't there. And so it, 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 I can't tell you. So, for, so then when young families like myself came in, there was nobody on that next rung of the ladder to disciple us. There was nobody there. So people like Jeff and Teresa Gilchrist were our lifelines. People like Jeff and Teresa Gilchrist because there were maybe just a handful of these folks that were here. And it has taken Bob blood, sweat, and tears and the Holy Spirit to work. So now there is a generation above for the generation that is coming up to see and a generation to coming up to see that generation and generation. And you see how we're hopefully building the kingdom of God, not with our own effort, but submitting to the will of the Holy Spirit. And then the last one is the thing that poked me the most. We're talking about children. The greatest way for any family to undermine the faith of their children is to profess Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God and the gospel with their mouth and to be absolutely worry-filled and anxious. That completely undermines the faith of a spiritual child or a biological child when they see you saying, trust in the Lord, 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 and yet you don't. And you worry. And you are the one that's going, God is not at work in my work. God, look at this, is going on. I can't, I, how are we going to make this? How is going to, what's this going to happen? What's this going to, I don't know, how are we going to do it? What's going to be, I can't, I don't know, what's going to go on? And you're 
undercutting the faith of your children, whether that's spiritual or biological, by professing Christ and then denying his lordship actively. So the greatest thing that you can do is to tell the gifts of God about God. The greatest work you can do is tell the gifts of God, and that's children, about God. And the last thing is this. I want to address the whole idea that there's some people in this room there, you're like, you don't know what I've gone through. I'm disappointed in God. You're catching me on this morning on Psalm 127, and you're telling me this stuff, and I'm disappointed in God right now. I thought I was trusting in God. I thought I was working in the Lord, and it bombed. I thought I was putting my trust in God, and he was protecting me, and he didn't. Or maybe you're cynical, and you're like, yeah, 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 I read that. Have you read about David and Solomon? Have you read about David and Solomon? You can't trust what they said. They didn't even do what they said in the Bible. You can't trust that. And you're jaded, and you're cynical, and you're disappointed in God. But I want to tell you something. If you don't trust in God's work and in his security, then who? If you don't trust in God's work and his security, then who? And if you say yourself, I'm going to tell you why that is the stupidest thing ever. Really quickly, quick story. If you ever know me and you want a piece of gum, come ask. I got, I got all the time. Now, Rob will tell you sometimes it's been in my pocket, so it's warm. <laughs> Rob will tell you there's nothing worse than, than pocket butt warm gum. But I chew gum. I, I chew gum for all my life. I don't know what it was. didn't really like candy, but I chew gum. You know, fresh breath is a priority for me, all that kind of good stuff. Sitting at my desk at Wednesday afternoon, chewing gum. I bit my lip. I bit my lip so bad that my lip bled. Y'all, I've been chewing for 46 years. 46 years have I been chewing. And I bit my lip. Some of y'all are like, yeah? I just want you to think about that for a minute. That's how messed up we are. We can't even chew without hurting ourselves. I know in movies you think it's so, so, so kind of like racy when, you know, the guy leans over and he kind of kisses the girl and maybe like huh, bites her lip with the bottom of her teeth a little bit and you're like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> but you don't do that to yourself. You're not like, oh, I wonder what that feels like, <clears throat> you know. <laughs> but you're chewing gum or you're going to sit down next week to Thanksgiving and I want you to remember this the next time you do it and you're going to bite your lip and you're going to go, I am weak. You, we bite our lips, and you're going to trust your work over God's. God doesn't bite his lip. But I say that to say, if you're not going to trust the Lord, who are you going to trust? And if you're even in a distant second place of work on your own, you're in for a load of disappointment. We can't trust ourselves. We bite our lips. And God says, here I am. Look at my record. Even my son, whom I offered up as a sacrifice for your sins, I raised him from the dead. You want to talk about building? God is not just the God of building. God's the God of rebuilding. And even if you're here this morning, you're like, you don't even know about my biological children. You don't want to know about my biological children. God knows, and they're not out of his plan. They're not out of his ken. They're not out of his ability to change and work, to remold, to redo, to reconnect. We find the worth of our work, the purpose of our work, and the strength for our work 
in, through, and by Christ. And we work at it with all our might, and we leave the outcome up to him. And then the gifts of children that he gives us along the way, whether spiritual or biological, we understand and humbly realize that the greatest work we will ever do is to shepherd them to be disciples of Jesus Christ.